And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So I am very excited about today's episode because we are going to explore a topic that, while hasn't necessarily been on the forefront of my mind, is always something that I've wondered about as I've walked through a grocery store. And that is, how in the world does every grocery store in the nation, uh, now I'm only talking exclusively in the U.S. here, this may be true across the world, but I can only speak from my personal experience, and that is in the United States, but how there have been, how there is so much abundance in every grocery store. And I think you really have to, to, to kind of question, where does it all come from? And that is exactly what Benjamin Lord did in his book, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the, the American Supermarket. And this is one of those books that really captivated me from the beginning. And I can understand how you could read that book or hear the topic, and maybe it doesn't quite tickle your fancy right off the bat. And I understand that. But please, give this a shot, because I think hopefully you will find this conversation interesting. And if you don't, please don't give up on this, because this is one of those great books that I think everyone should read, because everyone should know where their food is coming from, no matter if it's produce, if it's if it's meat, if it's dairy, uh, whatever it is, we all consume food, and most of us buy it in a supermarket. Some of us grow it at home. You know, uh, I grew up with a lot of farmers, a lot of people who grow their own food, live on a farm, are self-sustaining. And to those people, I I tip my hat because you have a skill that I wish I had. But for the bulk of us, we are buying our food at a grocery store and are not giving one second thought about where all of that food comes from. And I think today, hopefully, that will change your mind. Uh, So let's get right into this with Benjamin Lore. Benjamin, thank you so much for being on the show today. First of all, I love the title of the book, The Secret Life of Groceries. I mean, secret lives, everyone loves secret lives. Everyone wants to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, But then it gets really, you know, you kind of go in a different way. The subtitle is The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. I mean, you got like a yin and yang title there. Um, How did that come about? Uh, it's a good question. There was actually a lot of uh, a wrangling around the title, uh, especially the subtitle. I think I wanted that yin and yang big time because this was not a book that I thought had uh, a compact message that could be distilled down. And I, I think the publishing house would have loved if it was just like a flat out expose that was just uprooting all the dark things in the grocery industry and was kind of like relentlessly down. And I think (laughs) (laughs) a big part of the message I want people to get from the book is that the grocery store is a miracle. It's this absolute bounty of abundance that has never uh, been seen before in the human project. And it is also that bounty comes with a lot of costs, but it's impossible to understand those costs without appreciating um, just how remarkable it is and, and 
there's a reason why people are willing to um, put up with some of those costs. You know, I guess that makes sense because when I when you know, I think when people would initially hear that, right? Like if they're looking at the title of this podcast episode, they're like, "Secret Life of Groceries." Who cares? I go and get groceries every day. I can tell you the secret life of groceries. I, I think they're, they're totally <laughs> wrong, right? Because this is to me, this struck me as interesting for a couple different reasons: the scope of grocery stores, the sheer volume of food and product that is in the grocery stores. I love the history of grocery stores, and I think personally, I found this interesting because I think everybody. In the United States, I, I'm speaking for the entire the entire population of the United States right now. I'm saying I, we take them all for granted, and I personally always yes. wondered, like, how does every grocery store? How do they? They're always packed to the gills with stuff. How is that possible? I live in LA. There's five grocery stores with an immediate walking distance: two Trader Joe's, two Ralphs, and a Whole Foods. They all are filled with groceries right now. How is this possible? And I feel like that's kind of part of the underlying message of your book. Uh, kind of right? Oh, that that is, you pulled at the thread. That, that's the same thread that I pulled that kind of unraveled the whole uh, meat of the book. You know, that, that's, that, that's the thread I was following into this, la- or out of this labyrinth, rather, uh, to get the Daedalus thing right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, supermarkets are everywhere. There's 38,000 of them of them across the country. We spend 2% of our lives in them. You know, it's still our biggest food expenditure by a wide margins. Even the fact, you know, it's obviously gotten amped up much bigger during the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, the grocery stores where we were buying our food. And yet for most of us, it's this banal chore hmm. of a place. Um, and I think that that contradiction. I, I will say I'll, I'll out myself as someone who's always loved grocery stores, even prior to this book. I found find them kind of compelling if I'm uh, traveling somewhere. You know, also what's the grocery stores like in Nairobi? What's the grocery stores like in Paris? <laughs> like to me, that is actually yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's a form of tourism that's up there with going to a more cultural institutions, um, and I find them compelling. I think because of that dichotomy you were putting out there, the, the take it for grantedness along juxtaposed by the power behind them. So it's like I walk into a grocery store and I feel soothed and comforted in a way that reflects this kind of unconscious privilege that I think is in the grocery store. At the same time, there's it, 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 you can't be not aware of like the saturated colors and the, the, the sheer volume of things uh, and that power radiating out of them. So that, that juxtaposition is exactly what drew me in to the book. That makes sense. I mean, I think the other thing, I mean, all that stuff really resonates with me. And I think the other thing is I've been, you know, long before zombies came and went in pop culture, I'd always been kind of <laughs> obsessed with like the apocalypse, not like, you know, not like in a religious sense, but like zombie, you know, the more, the more plausible zombie apocalypse, uh, robot apocalypse, you know, virus apocalypse, you know, sure. we're pretty close to, we're, I feel like we're pretty close to societal collapse. We're flirting with it, you know, uh, pretty often. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think people are fascinated with it. They, it's like, they almost want it to be closer to societal collapse than it is. We're, <laughs> we're like, we've watched so many of these shows. Yeah. We're like, okay, You're right. now we get a trial run, but let's lean in. <laughs> right. No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And what's weird to me is in a lot of these movies and TV shows you will see that you know that that scene where people are scavenging for food right and everyone's always got like the can of beans or the can of whatever you know and you know usually when you're by the time you're watching the movie or TV show everyone is kind of drained every grocery store kind of the walls are bare there's you know there's no food everywhere 
And I think that that is what's really interesting to me because I think as a people, we've kind of gone soft, right? Like mm-hmm. what would we do for food if there was an apocalypse? If the grocery stores, which are our connection to sustenance, they're our connection to food, water, all these things that we need to survive, when they're gone, when that critical infrastructure is gone, what do we do? I mean, we I, I live in LA. People can't give up coffee for, for a, a day without right. like freaking out. Like we're pretty soft. And I think this is grocery stores are critical infrastructure that could, if they went away in a blink of an eye, so would society. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've lost a lot. First of all, that's, oh, yes. And I wish I would even have stolen that uh, image for the book, because I think the, the fact that that's a trope, it's just such a cliche in these movies that you have the scene in the grocery store, yeah, right? Yeah, in yeah. every zombie movie, that scene exists. And that, I think that speaks to this unconscious knowledge we carry around with ourselves. Mm-hmm. That, like, yeah, of course, we're not having the cliche is, uh, you know, something at a gas station it's 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 this place that we know is deeply connected to our survival and of course covid has has amplified that Mm. what i think is interesting is how lost that was because if you go back to the founding of the first supermarket which you could pretty put a pin in at like 1930 this guy named michael cullen founds the first grocery store Mm -hmm. uh sorry supermarket i should say uh there were grocery stores before that but the supermarket which really has the abundance of this uh and he does some different things to do this uh, but the reaction from people at the, to the first supermarket is one of people going bananas. They lose their minds. It mm-hmm. becomes a circus-like attraction. People drive from 50 miles away just to see it. You know, it's this, it's an amusement park. Um, and, and certainly when the first supermarket opens overseas, the same thing happens. Um, and, until like 1956, uh, supermarkets were exclusively an American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1956, there was the Food Congress in Rome. They open up. Uh, uh, the first American style supermarket there just as an exhibition and the Roman women lose their minds. There's like a story in the press of a woman running up and down the aisle screaming, this must be heaven. Others are like shrieking and and like that type of um, awe is lost. It it faded so quickly, but it was definitely part of the supermarket's um, reception initially. I mean, I think that that kind of sums up Americans. <laughs> I mean, we love something <laughs> and we have abundance and we've got stuff better than everyone else. And then we quickly take it for granted and then feel entitled to it until it disappears. And then we cry about wanting it back. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. Um, but, you know, you really got into the weeds on this. I mean, not only I mean, this this book's amazing. It, it covers so many different directions. And and I think. Kind of what what really impressed me uh, is that you really kind of dug into the grocery scene. If there's a scene, I guess punk rock has a scene. I don't know if the grocery store has a scene. But, you know, you were on Thai fishing boats. You you worked at a Whole Foods seafood counter. You, you, you know, you rode around with some long haul truckers. You even broke into a factory farm. You know, that's just that's just a couple of the major things that you did. I mean, you put the work in on this thing. So what was like your goal in writing the book itself? Yeah, that's, you know, as a writer, I want to get as close as possible to the subject matter. And that's, I think that's very, you know, my first book was on the Bikram yoga world. Um, uh, It involved trying to uncover why that community was so obsessive. And I think you could have written that book in a very sociological Mm -hmm. removed fashion. And my approach to that book was, no, I'm going to do gobs of yoga like how <laughs> it's like just pour my life into this yoga world to see what it was about and like wear the clothes uh-huh. uh of a bikram yogi completely to get it as close 
to that world as I could. Um, and, and, and that was fascinating. And it proved a much more sympathetic portrait, I think, of, you know, it turns out there's like a megalomaniac Trumpian guru in the heart of the sexual predator. But it gave me an appreciation of this guy that I think I would have sneered at um, otherwise. And so I wanted to bring that energy into the grocery world because I did, I did think there was some parallels between that book and a relationship to food um, uh, in, in the way that food has changed over my life, at least from going to like food is just food. We go to the grocery store, we pick some stuff off the shelves and, and to food is cultural signifier and carrying all this weight, um, whether that's weight around health values or weight around ecological virtuous or connection to your ancestry or connection to your kin, or just the fact that you have like a unique colon biota that, that signifies you're a special snowflake. Um, right. Mm-hmm. It, food became something very definitional. And I didn't think I could, understand that by keeping my by like keeping like a, a, a strong remove from the different parts so i i wanted each section i kind of wanted to get as close to the voices that were interacting with the system as possible so that was so that was real so the goal was to get as close as possible not necessarily to tell a specific story you just kind of told the story that emerged that's right uh you know i have the luxury of not having a thesis at the beginning of this book, which is, um, which is rare in the writing world. Unheard <laughs> and, of, I would argue. Uh, I, <laughs> no, well, it, it, it happened due to kind of a lucky, I sold a proposal uh, that was looking basically exclusively at Trader Joe's and the editor who bought the proposal was like, look, I love this, but I don't want it to just be about Trader Joe's. And I was like, well, what, what do you love exactly? It's just about Trader Joe's. And, and she was like, you know, I think she was a fan of the first book and was, it was essentially like, just, I, you know, trust yourself and go forth. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, it, it, it made things difficult. It made yeah. the book extremely wide. But uh, but ultimately, it allowed. I think there's a narrative structure in my mind that exists in terms of stepping further down the chain. From you know, we start with an examination of Trader Joe's as told to us from the CEO level um, by Trader Joe himself, uh, Joe Colum, who founded the chain, and then ultimately we get to the bottom of the commodity chain in Thailand. And um, there's some various intermediate steps in between. I think that's a great way to describe it. I was thinking, you know, it's funny when think about narrative structure. Like when I have my notes put together, I was trying to organize them in a way that would make sense. And I couldn't quite do it. For some reason, I just couldn't quite do it. So I put all my favorite stuff at the beginning and then and then we you know kind of go, you know, see what we get to. But, you know, it's funny because when you read the book, it does actually have a narrative structure. And once you're finished with it and you realize all the things that you've covered, that is kind of that is the dark miracle, I think, is that you were able to have a narrative structure because there is so much going on. I mean, you could have done you know, like the, uh, you know, like follow, follow shrimp and see, okay, where does shrimp come from and how does it end up in the aisle at frozen aisle at Trader Joe's, right? Like you could have gone that route, but you kind of do go in the opposite direction and almost kind of slowly go down this rabbit hole, which is kind of interesting. And you start at a very strange place. You started two strange places, actually. 
And the first one, I think, if I'm understanding it correctly, was at least, at least you say it in the book as your inspiration for writing the book, but you spent time in Kenya studying blue monkeys. So I've never heard of blue monkeys. I didn't (laughs) know what that was, Um, (laughs) but it sounded like it was pretty rough goings there. Um, How did that, what, what, what was that about and how did that lead you to this book? Yeah, you know, that was the, so we just, we just talked a lot about this miracle or this appreciation and I didn't have coronavirus to kind of like let me know that hey the grocery store vital institution and I didn't have your helpful uh, zombie cliche pointing out sure. that like oh we already knew this yeah. in the back of our head yeah. I was lucky that I as an undergraduate got to work on a research team in Kenya that was studying blue monkeys as you said kind of basic anthropological research um like on primatological um we would follow around these monkeys in trees with gumboots and binoculars and track their social dynamics and and you'd get to know each monkey by name because you know they have facial structures that you can identify which fascinating research it was done in an actual jungle rainforest in Kenya, the Kakamega rainforest in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Uh, we had no running water. We had um, no electricity. We, you know, it was like light of the lantern light to go to bed, wake up to the sound of the rainforest, which people don't know is actually quite loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to get to, you know, it was a very, we hand washed our clothes um, with rainwater that we would collect and, and occasionally take solar showers with rainwater that we collected and, and had been warmed by the sun. So a pretty <laughs> drastic transfer from my suburban youth growing up outside of D.C. Although very zombie and, apocalypse, though. I mean, that is, you, you, if yeah. that happens, you're going to be well prepared. <laughs> well, well prepared to wash my clothes, yeah. sure. Um, I'll be the only one who knows how to, to hand wash anymore. Um, but... But I came back from that, and really, uh, yeah, the first night uh, I was in New York, walking into a grocery store was a you know straight up hallucinogenic experience. You know, it was a, a, the store felt like it was beckoning me in, and I saw it with new eyes. And I think it is another one of these cliches you've seen it in movies before where like the vet army veteran comes back and (laughs) walks through this grocery store. And I think a lot of us have that when you travel, but that for me was this moment where I was like, Oh yeah, this is something I've treated like a birthright. I've taken it for granted. I didn't understand it before. It was only until I was like, I I had lived without that. I realized not just like, what a good thing this is, but what a trippy thing this is. What a surreal thing that we would think that this is something normal that we should create. Like I lived fine in Canada. You you described it as rough up top, but that's not actually accurate. Like it was uh, divorced from my suburban world, but we had access to fresh food uh, that was grown locally. We, you know, cleaning our clothes took time, but we also had a lot of extra time on our hands. And, uh, and of course I was living a plush life of of a researcher. So we had a we had a budget, but um, all of my vital needs were met over there. The the excess of the grocery world seemed extremely apparent hmm. to me. And then, of course, uh, when you think of that excess, you think of all the power that goes into creating that excess. And I think that's, you know, that's what I wanted to do with the book is just kind of scratch that surface and see what was behind that power. And And you find there's a lot of 
kind of menace and suffering on the other side of it. <laughs> no, that is that is true. There certainly is. And and then the se- the second thing that starts the book off that 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 <laughs> really stuck with me. It's speaking of menace and foreboding is you talk about how you you so you go under you know you kind of go undercover I don't know if undercover is the right word but you go to work for Whole Foods and you work in their seafood case and you give I think it's uh, maybe it's just hyperbole but it feels like a three to four page description of how every month the seafood case gets cleaned out completely. All the ice gets taken out. It gets, you know, watered down and scrubbed and cleaned and everything. And you describe that process in incredible detail and also spend an inordinate amount of time explaining just how terrible the (laughs) smell was. And you've been into some pretty gross places, but you make it a point to say it was the worst. And then it does, when you finish the book, it does kind of come full circle and you understand it. But how, so you kind of call that a metaphor. Does that, does that really hold true? Does that, like, what, what, why did you start the book with that particular experience? Yeah. At first, I don't think there's any hyperbole in that description. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, like I say, right after it quick, it's like, this is a nonfiction. Right. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually had that experience. I was working at the Whole Foods and I remember the night that I did that. I had a little journal that I was taking notes because, of course, I'm, you know, I know I'm writing this book the whole time. And we're called late to clean this this uh, fish counter and I didn't know what we were going to do beforehand. Um, but, but the kind of call came down, stay a little later, we're going to clean the case and we start cleaning it. And you're the fish counter is a fish counter, you know, it has fish on it. There's some weird smells. Um, but there's also, it's, it's an old school one and it was built on chips of individual ice that we'd get from this giant freezer with big snow shovels. And we'd kind of like pack the, sh- the ice in and put the fish on top. Uh, but it's about three feet deep and wow. and so to clean it, you just chop up the, the snow and, and get it out and you think that would be it. But it turns out that over the course of a month or two months, depending on when that call comes down, the fish dribble and shrimp casings and, you know, we, we would be gutting hold fish sometimes for customers or skinning fish for customers. It, drips and drabs of that somehow fall through the ice or you know, through the cracks on the side of it when it thins out at night and they accumulate on the bottom and it turns to rot. And, and that ice acts as a buffer between the top and the bottom. And so I hadn't, you know, until I cleaned the case, I had no idea it was down there and you can't smell it. It is, I think, perfectly hygienic on the top of the case. I, 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 I don't think it's anything to be scared of, but when you crack through the ice and get to the bottom, it's this uh, miasma of gross, rotting fish guts <laughs> and Good it was Lord. horrifying and i remember doing that that day i was like oh i have the beginning of this book <laughs> like <laughs> I, this is like unbelievable that this is yeah. you know this is like one of the wealthiest uh nations when one of the wealthiest neighborhoods and this is what it looks like it just seemed like a perfect encapsulation between the distance as a consumer that front top that we see um, which is this kind of awe experience we've been talking about or in the fish counters is the top of that ice that is perfectly hygienic and is clean. And then somehow when you get tight to the bottom, there is just a lot of suffering or in the case of the literal fish case, uh, 
you know, just rot. <laughs> right. No, it's a great metaphor uh, and quite a description. I think people listening should buy the book for the first five or six pages because they're they're wonderful. Uh, the rest of the book is obviously well researched, but th- that description that is that's like Pulitzer stuff. I mean, that's good. It's a really good description. <laughs> uh, now, how do you uh, how do you feel about grocery stores now? I mean, like the places you've you know the places you've seen, the places you've been, uh, the things you've seen and smelled. How, what is a grocery store like now? Is it ruined it for you? Is it like going to a sausage factory? Like, what's that experience like now? No, you know, so I would say the grocery store now is one I carry with a greater appreciation for, if anything. Um, You know, I I get asked this question a lot, and I think there's some hope that people are going to be like, oh, you can't, I can't shop at grocery stores anymore. I just go to the green market and get everything there. I've started my victory garden in the backyard. And, and that's wonderful. And, and I, I think I do uh, have looked into alternate supply chains. And I, and I think the book has pushed me to make some direct connections with farmers. Uh, I get my pecans from a uh, lovely new generations farmer now uh, down in Georgia direct because they taste better. And it's something that, uh, you know, that's like a direct network that I could uh, could, could connect with. But in general, I, I I would say I walk in and I think, wow, like America 2020, like there are a number of institutions that need reform and the process of reforming them is not going to be an easy one. And it's going to come from shifts that probably don't, probably aren't consumer driven. They're structural changes, policy changes. Um, and and that, that that's a big, um, I guess those type of shifts come to my mind. It, I I won't say it's like a, a a helplessness exactly, but it's it's a it's a release from the feeling that I as a consumer am somehow in control, and my 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 choices as a consumer are somehow going to be guiding this ship. Got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's because there's a whole section in the book about certifications, you know, whether it's organic or whether it's free trade or paleo. And they're kind of bogus in a weird way. Like they're, you know, they're they're a way for people to feel good about their purchases, but don't necessarily, you know, in any kind of concrete way, materialize into a better world or a better supply chain, as you mentioned. And I thought that was kind of, you know, that that kind of struck me when I, when I you know, when I listened to that because the, or when I read that, because the way you describe it makes a lot of sense. And so I didn't know if like going into a store, if you kind of have like a new vision of it, you know, and I mean, I don't know, it just seems like grocery stores are, you know, I mean, you, you know, one of the big stats that you mentioned, which is kind of interesting, is that you know, we spend 10% of our budget on food, a great grandparent spent 40%, a grandparent spent 30%. The trend is down. Food cost is down. It's oh, an yeah. apparent abundance. It's an incredibly efficient system. And that has to, that cost has to go someplace, right? I mean, it's, when I look at like some of the things that I buy, like, for example, you mentioned Trader Joe's. I happen to be a fan of Trader Joe's. Uh, you are not a fan of Trader Joe's, which I think is crazy, but I'm, I'm not here to change your mind. Um, <laughs> I'm not a Trader Joe's hater. Whoa, I, I don't uh, know about I'm that. I'm an agnostic. I'm a Trader Joe's agnostic. I think it, the chain does some things extremely well. Uh, they they get a certain type. They have zeroed in on a certain consumer's idea of value, and 
and kind of hit the bullseye on that like nobody else. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I think that idea of value is is one to think about. Like, you know, I think it tells tells us more about the consumer who thinks that it's it's so valuable than it does about uh, the change. <laughs> easy, easy. A bullet just flew by my head there. All right, take it easy. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I go to Trader Joe's. I love I love Trader Joe's too. Don't, don't get me wrong. Okay, don't right. don't mischaracterize all right, the Trader all right. Joe's hater. All right, all right. Well, so what I think is funny, like for example, I would buy like a bag of spinach and it costs two dollars or something, yeah. right? Or, or here's a better example: orange juice, right? Their orange juice for the longest time was 64 ounces. It was 2.99. Even at times when Tropicana was shrinking their containers and everything, they happened to keep the, the, the you know, the, the price at, at the same price. And I always thought to myself, like, how is this possible? Like, how, how is it that these things are so mm-hmm. cheap? And what you learn is is that the the drive is always to make things cheaper. But that comes at a cost somewhere down. There's a ripple effect at some point, you know. And at the end of the book, you, you talk about the, um, you know, the shrimp farms in Thailand and human, I mean, literal like human slavery. I mean, I guess it's indentured servitude mm-hmm. technically, but I mean, that's like that's like the distant cousin of slavery, right? I mean, it's it's very very close. Sure. I mean, I use the word slave in the book because I feel like as contentious a word as that is. There's really no other word in the English language for someone who's bought and sold yeah. for money and <laughs> what else kept do you call it? in bondage, beaten if they don't do what is asked of them for an indefinite period of time. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, you know, it's sorry, pretty, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, it's pretty cut and dry. I mean, you're exactly right. And I, I like that is the part that's kind of scary, I think, when you finish the book and you're like, wow, like to get shrimp all the time here. It requires a lot. And those are the, you know, you talk to a guy uh, who spent time on a fishing boat and his job was just to basically scrape the ocean floor for whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> and then chop it up into fish meal. And that fish meal then feeds the shrimp farms. Like he doesn't even, he's, he's at literally the bottom of the ocean and of the supply chain. And he, you know, mm-hmm. I said endangered servitude because technically maybe this is to take guilt away from themselves, but they've trained him and they're holding his quote unquote debt for things that they've charged him for. And so, so I mean, you know, they, they bought his debt. So he's technically an indentured servant. Um, but, but you know, he th- that was just like that blew my mind. Like that whole scenario, the last chapter, I think it is, uh, or second to last chapter, that was crazy to me. But my point is to get those prices down there is a cost down the line. And I think that was, to me, the most revealing part of the book. No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So, I mean, look, the stats you quoted, 40%, you know, turn of the century, 30% of our budget going to food uh, at our, you know, our grandparents in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and now we're sub 10% to what we pay for food. Again, it's like, you have to appreciate the fact that this is, if, if someone took 40% of your income right now and was like, you're going to get 30% of that back to do whatever you want with, that's a little way of thinking about how the revolution in logistics and agricultural technology um, that has, that has you know, happened over the last century with our food system. It, it, it is miraculous. <clears throat> On the same time, um, especially over the last, 30 years, the last 20 to 30 years, a lot of the low, the, the continuous lowering of price comes out of labor. 
Um, and, you know, again, it really touches on a lot, a number of different points that are, that are kind of broad. We've, we've briefly touched on them in this conversation, but the system of certifications that guarantees different attributes of food to allow it to become a commodity. And mm-hmm. a commodity is something that can be traded freely around. Um, you know, it exists in, in that kind of an a, a anonymous, um, generic um, state. But to, to meet the world commodity markets, you have to reach certain standards. There, and those are kind of fixed costs of entry for something like shrimp. That means that you have to use the right type of feed and you, you're not using it, these type of antibiotics or you are using these type of medication or you're using this type of um, type of larva for the shrimp. You know, you know, these kind of specifications for to gain entry into market are very rigidly constructed for manufacturers. Um, and, you know, every few years, the first world buyer comes to acts for a, a price cut because they're competing for customers back home and, and supposedly there's some efficiency should have developed. Um, and the one place in their cost structure they tend to have control over is labor. Mm-hmm. And, and so labor is where the cuts get made uh, again and again. And in a globalized world where there's enormous amount of wealth inequity, uh, there's also a volume of people, like a huge number of people who are desperate for work. And those two factors just really combine into, you know, a horrifying situation where you can have people who are at, you know, I never want the migrants that I depicted in the book to come off as pure victims, even though these horrible things are happening for them. They, they made conscious choices to try to better their life. I think that they were bamboozled by people and they were taken advantage of by people, but the need that put them into that situation was very real and very understandable. They were fleeing for a better life. Um, and to, to, to even to call them naive for making, taking some of the risks that they take, um, I think is a very privileged and, and, and it, it does, it's privileged, it's just erroneous. Like I don't think they were naive. They just were not, their backs were against the wall. Um, and you juxtapose that level of desperation with a system that can only see cost savings um, by cutting labor costs. And you get a horrible um, endpoint where p- people get treated uh, in literally inhumane, you know, at, like as disposable um, pieces of a system rather than as as human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think you when you were talking about Whole Foods and the on on the on time, um, uh, what do you call it? on time scheduling? You kind of make the just, you, just in time, scheduling. yeah, just time scheduling. Yeah. You kind of talk about how people are treated as parts in a machine that will wear out and need to be replaced. And I think that that metaphor definitely extends even there. I mean, these are people. I mean, they're literally not even thinking of people as people when you get down to that supply chain. And I think that that really starts. You know, it, you know, we're talking about grocery stores in America, and I think Americans are really. You know, I, I'm included in this list. Obviously, I'm at the top of the list, but it's so disconnected from anything really going on in the world, right? Like when you hear a story about a guy who ends up on a fishing boat for five years against his will, getting beaten with a metal ball on a stick, a weaponized yo-yo, I think you call it, uh, that really kind of changes your priorities on how bad your situation is in life. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really puts things into perspective. Yeah, you know? <laughs> which I also think is extremely helpful for us. Um, like I hate the, tr- yeah, 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 yeah. 
Amen to that. Uh, I will say that, yes, you're absolutely right, that, that this is a theme of the book that develops kind of slowly. And, and I will say, and to, to the Trader Joe's fans out there, like, is directly contradicted by my experience with uh, Joe Kaloum, who founds Trader Joe's, who I, I got a chance to speak to and, and kind of like helped me understand the thinking that goes into his train. That was a place where human beings were very valued, not just um, – employees he, he tended to pay his his workers more than anyone else um but also the, the kind of human ingenuity and creativity in terms of what types of products would be sold but but you're, you're but you're absolutely right that just about everywhere else in the book we see labor as a play we see the drive for convenience and efficiency causing a kind of transmutation like slipping from the world of parts and pieces to humans so all these systems of logistics that are so wonderful get uh render the truck driver uh, a disposable piece and all these systems of scheduling efficiency that make staffing better take um the retail employee and and make their job very different from the minimum wage jobs that I, you know, I worked a lot of minimum wage jobs growing up. I was a writer for God's sake. So like I, I waited tables, attended bar. I, I, I worked retail um, before, before the book. And the, the, the jo- those jobs 20 years ago were substantively different than the jobs I encountered now um, in the sense that they've been made more efficient and, and, and that's great for the, the, the company. It, it means that the life of the, the, re, the retail employee gets valued less. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, th- that all makes sense. And I think, you know, part of what the difference is, is we have a disconnect from where the food comes from. We have a disconnect to how, you know, it's handled in the, in the grocery stores, but also we've got such a disconnect to the food that we eat. Um, you know, I did a whole episode on the history of chicken in the United States, which is mm. in the world, I guess, but it's a fascinating book. But we did not talk about uh, a chicken plant. And, you know, you talk about how there's a moment uh, in the factory where an animal goes from living, it comes in a living animal, and it comes out like a package covered in plastic with a with an SKU, a shopkeeping number on it, you know. And there's a moment where mm-hmm. the animal, the living thing, turns into food, which is like an item, right? And, and we... And there's a you make a very uh, specific poignant point in the book where you say the supervisor told you the exact moment that it goes from animal to food, and then that then once it's disconnected from a living thing, you know, then I think human beings we don't think of it as a living thing, right? Now I, I'm not a vegan, I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, I do really I love animals, and so some people may think I'm a hypocrite. But I think that if you're going to eat meat, I do see a value in treating it humanely and remembering that it's food. It's why I hate food waste so much, you know? I mean, an animal gave its life for that food. It may look like, it may be a chicken nugget in the shape of a dinosaur, but like a chicken gave its life for that chicken nugget, right? And I think that just just have even, yeah. even having like that level of connection would change people's view on a grocery store. And I, I really think that that was what kind of struck me uh, as I was reading this, is how disconnected we just are from food, living or or even vegetables, and the people yeah. you know pick them. I, I think that's right, right, exact, and that's exactly the like. I think we as a culture have become very disconnected from notions of scarcity, yeah, yeah, especially. Yeah. 
um, you know, your your typical Trader Joe's Whole Foods shopper. Um, scarcity, we can understand it as an abstract concept, but we we don't understand it in a visceral sense. And everything in our all the messaging, all the implicit biases and unconscious signals that these stores are selling us is that scarcity doesn't exist at all. I mean, it, you know, if you talk to the supermarket managers of the world, which I did, of course, for this book and shadowed them around, like their idea of the worst thing that can happen is a stock out. Like the idea that a, a, an item might not be available for their shelf <laughs> right, at yeah. a certain time, that is, a, that is like the anxiety dream of the supermarket manager <laughs> is the stock out. And that's, you know, at one level, you think about that, you're like, as a consumer, I don't think I would care that much. It's like, okay, I go there one day and there's no just peanut butter. Yeah. Well, move right along. I won't make that today. Uh, you know, I won't make a PB&J today. But um, there's so much messaging going on that that is just an unacceptable outcome for the supermarket. Um, that that is the whole system is set up to say no, scarcity is not a thing. We're going to produce this uh, like vision of abundance, and because of that, you're going to buy more. Right. You know, <laughs> I think that scarcity thing. I want to I want to fit something in uh, right here because I think there's a good a good segue. You're talking about scarcity. Uh, a lot. I've done. I think this is this will be the seventh episode I've done of this podcast that has a reference to the Chicago Fair of 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to mention. I want to cram it in here because I want to add this to the list. But that is the point that I think the 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 idea. This idea of abundance. It was a guy John Kruger creates the Smorgasbord Restaurant, kind of like a buffet. The first cafeteria, and it's really that. If I'm if I'm looking at the history correctly, that point at the Chicago's Fair in 1893 is the point where we kind of where scarcity where scarcity kind of goes out of fashion in a way, right? Like that. Mm -hmm. That seems to be where it comes and where everyone kind of gets their idea, and that lends itself to this to the grocery store. Is that is that pretty accurate to say? Well, yeah. I I mean I think whatever happens in that shift uh, with the smorgasbord restaurant and the cafeteria style restaurant is, you know, in a book, I call it foreplay for the birth of the, yeah. the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, and, but I think it's, it's worth unpacking because it's interesting. You know, I don't really unpack it that much in the book, but I think there's a lot of different things are happening at once. Um, so first of all, that inverts the traditional dynamic that has happened at supermarket. First of all, supermarkets didn't exist at the general store, mm -hmm. which is where people bought their food heretofore. Mm -hmm. uh, food was kept behind the counter. You couldn't touch it if you were a c customer. Um, you handed over your list to a clerk who would then fill your order for you. Um, and the the products that existed were all in anonymous bulk. They were all, you know, a, a barrel full of, of fruit or grain, or they, they didn't didn't have brand names attached to them. And then with the smorgasbord and the, and the cafeteria style, you see a shift where now it's the customer is walking along a line and picking and choosing between items. Um, and it happens at the precise moment that package techno mm. technology around packaging mm. is really changing. Um, that 1850s, really, Civil War um, to like nine, the 1890s is r right when packaging technology goes, the, the paper box is invented in that 
time. The paper bag is invented mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. time. Um, the tinning and, and glass mm-hmm. gets cheaper. Yep. So it's preserving food. And when you have these individuated products, of course, they need uh, names attached to them. You can't sell them in anonymous bulk anymore because you now have a, a, a paper box or a little a sleeve of crackers that, um, that, that you want to put names on. And that creates uh, not only is the customer now moving and choosing one by one, they're now sifting between items and, and there's choice that's involved. And, and with choice, there's a vehicle for, for producing meaning there. So it's not just, it's like, it's, it's, it's even more like the scarcity goes away and the act of, of shifting through abundance becomes a way for people to express themselves and becomes a way for them to, um, to, to, to put meaning into their world, whether that's like buying a treat for your child or, or, or sh- showing your husband that you love him by saving money, um, you know, by choosing the cheaper option. But however, that shifting of choices is, is, is meaningful. So is it really an interesting turning point where scarcity suddenly swaps out for consumptive meaning? Yeah, that is really interesting. And I, th- what else I thought was kind of interesting is once, you know, once we do start to have st- stores, I think, um, Piggly Wiggly becomes the first store that allows patrons to go and touch the food and walk through. You know, before that, you would go up to a counter and you would tell the clerk, like, hey, I want, you know, here's my list of groceries. And then he would do the shopping and then bring it to you. Uh, And then Piggly Wiggly comes out and they, you know, you're allowed to walk through like a conveyor belt and pick your food. It's one way. You have to go in order. And it's funny how we've come full circle to that. You know, I mean, now you have a lot of people are having their food delivered That's or right. they're, you know, or, you know, Trader Joe's for a long time was only ma- allowing people to go in a certain way because of the pandemic. And it's just funny how that, you know, I don't know if that's going to be an ongoing trend, but it is funny how you, we've kind of come full, full circle back to that where, you know, walking through a store was a luxury at one point, And now it seems almost like a burden and in some cases, you know, dangerous or hindrance. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. There's a lot of old, I mean, the home delivery was big in grocery stores in the, you know, in the early days. Um, and now home delivery is something that, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, my grocery store will even deliver it to my house. And it's like, if you told that to someone in the 1920s, they'd be like, yeah, of course they will. <laughs> um, that's what grocery stores do, right? right? And, and, uh, so there is a lot of that full circle. I will say, I, although we might not want to walk in stores anymore, I don't see us going back to the pre-smorgasbord general store era where we're willing to hand a list to somebody else uh, without specifying the brands that we want. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, there, you know, that day might come. It's, it's interesting. Um, Trader Joe's is a little bit like that in that it's all private labeled. And what you're essentially doing is trusting Trader Joe's to make those decisions for you because they, you know, as an entity, you, you decided that they know how to do it better than you do. And we, you do that for wine stores. Similarly, mm-hmm. um, you know, the wine store curates your product. So maybe I could see an online business, I guess, that, that kind of offers really high quality generic products. Um, and, and we would trust it with a list. But 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 that's that's I don't know. You're, that's right on the frontiers of retail. I can't speculate. Well, yeah, and no, I think, you know, and I th- 
if you look at like Amazon after the acquisition of Whole Foods, in some ways that is kind of what's going on, right? I mean, they've got their own 365 brand label that they use the Trader Joe's guys to do. Uh, and, and so if you order broccoli from, from Amazon, you got like two options, frozen or not frozen, but it's the same brand, right? And people would trust Whole Foods to be a high quality version. So, you, and Amazon's obviously very popular. I'm not, I'm not breaking the news on that, but, but I think that maybe if, if it's going to happen, I think it'll be more common than it, than it's ever been since the advent of, yeah. <laughs> of Piggly Wiggly is my, my guess. Uh, one of the other really interesting statistics is, you know, we're talking about the first supermarket, this first supermarket, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, the first supermarket was 6,000 square feet, and people thought that they would get <laughs> lost in the store. Uh, they, I mean, the, I, think, yeah. I think you said the housewives are like, that was a legitimate fear. And now a modern Costco is 200,000 square feet, which is, you know, I mean, that that is just um, I mean, that you, I think any modern person could actually get lost in a Costco. I mean, and that's... Oh, I mean yeah. that's legitimate. <laughs> I think you could, uh, but I mean that is that's just actual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And that is that is such an incredible, ex- almost exponential growth. I'd have to see it on a chart. Maybe it's not quite exponential, but that is a pretty incredible size. I mean, how did you don't really talk much about Costco? But where does Costco kind of fit on the scale of of grocery stores? What's so Costco is really interesting, and I don't go in it in the book. And it's like. I will put, I can tell you how I think of it fitting in here. It's kind of a, a cross between some of the attributes that Trader Joe's does mm. and, you know, a, a discount club uh, model, like a Sam's mm. club. Um, and, and of course they've innovated around size um, to, to produce interesting things, but uh, they're, they're really interesting in terms of just like how they functions on a nuts and bolts. But to go to your point on, size i think it's you know that was the that was the innovation of the supermarket it sounds silly to say innovation but the big insight was like look if we just blow this thing up and make it bigger we can change this into a volume game from a margin game we can shrink margins down extremely tight and we can just uh offer people prices that are so low they're going to actually want to buy more than they need or, or than they want and that they're, they're, they, that they expect to because they've never seen prices quite like this before. Um, and, and it's going to create like a, this carnival like atmosphere and this, and size was a big part of that cost savings. You didn't need where as many warehouses if you were going to cr- make a store itself that was a warehouse. Um, so you'd save there. And because it was an attraction, you could locate it off the main street and in, in, uh, in a place where real estate prices would be cheaper. And all of that was funneled into to cost cutting. Um, and, and then, you know, as you said, from 1930, 6,000 square feet to, you know, 1950s, it was about 18,000 square feet. And, and then it, it just on regular basis, people were just uh, juicing it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, and I think what Costco has done is taken that impulse to its current extreme, but who knows? Maybe there'll be someone who does it bigger later. Never underestimate the American ability to like <laughs> think think that bigger is better. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're we're pretty good at that. Uh, but also coupled that 
with what Trader Joe's has done in, in, in really lowering its SKU counts. So SKU is the stock keeping units that you mentioned before that, um, that they're just the individual products that they offer. And, you know, Currently, stores offer around fifty-five to sixty-five thousand different individual items. A Sam's Club, you know, like a big Walmart-like store, might offer a hundred thousand different items. Um, and, and Trader Joe's realized that if he was going to compete uh, with all those different items, his buyers could never gain any sort of expertise over the supply chains, right? If you're a buyer in a store like that, you might have. 70 different categories of items under your, your, your charge, each category, which might have a thousand different items within it. <laughs> so you're supposed to be master of 70,000 different um, supply lines. It's, that, of course, is not going to be the case. Um, you're going to turn into somebody who's really good at numbers and spreadsheets and replenishment of, of the items, but you're, you're never going to be able to gain mastery over all of that. It's just beyond the human brain. Um, and so Trader Joe's response to that uh, is, okay, well, we're going to make this human scale and I'm going to slash the number of goods that I'm offering. And, um, and, and that's going to allow me to find higher quality um, or, or create higher quality offerings. And I think Costco has kind of threaded this needle um, by finding value through in getting bigger, the oldest story in the book, uh, the volume game of grocery and the Trader Joe's game of slash of finding uh, value through um, cutting the number of its offerings into a, a very curated um, a store. So again, Costco does not have everything in, under the sun. It has highly curated offerings in, in giant sizes. Um, so I think that is really interesting. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would say, I mean, as you're talking, it, it makes me think of, you know, how kind of malls are dying, right? You, 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 when I was a kid, it used to be Sears, JCPenney's, uh, Montgomery Wards, like all these department stores used to be an anchor on a mall. And a lot of them, you know, they're going bankrupt, they're going out of business. And Costco, mm -hmm. in a way, is like I don't know, growing up, it was like a Sears or a JCPenney. I mean, you got tools, you've yeah. got, you know, clothes, you've got, I mean, you've got all this kind of stuff, housewares, you got jewelry. Costco does have everything. Uh, you know, they don't have the selection mm -hmm. of different brands necessarily. They may only have two or three, as you mentioned, a curated a selection. But I mean, it, and it's growing. Costco's growing. It feels very similar to a department store from an offering standpoint. And you have to pay money to go in. You have to, every year, you know, mm -hmm. so that that I don't know, that just strikes me as, as very strange when you look at it in the history of, you know, stores in general. Yeah. I mean, again, I am not qualified to dig into the nuts and bolts of the Costco model, but I imagine that membership allows them to juice their price. You know, not, I imagine I know that that membership allows them to play the margin game even better. So the cross the comparison pricing at Costco will always look better because a significant amount of their bottom line comes from memberships. So they don't have to worry about uh, what a traditional grocery store does, which is sell things, some items at an extremely low margin and some at a negative margin, i.e. a loss leader, and then juice the edges so that there are other items that you stumble on during this kind of buying frenzy that have like three to four times the normal margin uh, and and the, that's the the holy mix that you know the grocery category managers talk about creating the the mix of items and the mix of margins so that 
people are simultaneously excited and drawn to put the high margin items in. Costco doesn't have to play that game quite the same mm. because their their bottom line comes from these this this membership right. fee. Um, so that's it's interesting. No, I think so, and I think it's it's a great segue into one other thing I want to get to before we run out of time is how a lot of the, you know you talk about these tight margins in grocery stores, but grocery stores make a ton of money. How is that possible? Well, my eyes were opened here. Uh, just the number of fees that that national mm. brands have to pay to be in a store. You follow. You follow. Uh, I'm gonna get your last name incorrect. Julie Boucher. 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 Yeah, and yeah. she's you know she's yeah. a, a young entrepreneur. Uh, her story is pretty incredible. You got to check it out in the book. But she's trying to sell um, a product called Slossa, which is coleslaw and salsa. And she's trying to get it into stores. And through her story, you kind of expose all the different fees that happen, not the least of which is a slotting fee, which means that a store is paying X amount of dollars per inch of shelf space. So that, I mean, right. not only, not only if you're a national brand, can you crowd out the competition, but, you know, as a young, as a young entrepreneur coming in, it is really expensive to, to get shelf space. And meanwhile, the retailer who's making 2% on everything and 2 to 3% on everything in the store now is just getting, this is just straight cash. I mean, it's a borderline bribe. I mean, really, I mean, it's just literally straight up cash. I don't know how this is, how this is legal, but yeah. Know. I talked to the former head of Whole Foods National for the book, and he just called it crack, like crack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, yeah, it, every buyer I know is susceptible to these these fees because it is rocket fuel to your bottom line. It is uh, you, here you are struggling. You know, a buyer is beholden to his bosses ahead of them, and they better be bringing home the bacon. Otherwise, they're going to get a new buyer in there. And all you got to do is tell the young entrepreneur that's trying to get on your shelf space. Yeah. You, you need to pay me a fee to get on that shelf. Um, and, and it comes in a variety of forms. And I will say it, it's absolutely not just the national brands. Everybody, mm -hmm. these, everybody from small to big uh, has to pay these fees. The, the rule is the more that you can pay, the more they'll come after you. So the national brands certainly pay the most um, as long and, 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 and products that have venture capital connected them pay more, um, which itself has a ripple effect on the food system because it means that a, an entrepreneur like Julie has a much harder role, uh, role, much harder job getting onto the shelf than someone connected to venture capital. And it probably blocks a lot of innovation and a lot of like young, good, tasty ideas from getting onto the shelves because they're not connected properly to the type of cash that fuels this. Um, and, and, and it, it also shifts the mentality of the grocery store manager from, again, from that kind of Joe Kaloom, Trader Joe's mentality of, oh, I, I want you to specialize in the food supply chain and figure out the best tasting food for this demographic, this customer, um, to, okay, I can operate like a landlord and I can like essentially lease shelf right. space. Uh, that, that's a straight slotting fee. Uh, or I can ask them to give me free cases of their product or like subsidize a buy one, get one free uh, or a demo in the store. Or I can just, you know, again, you say it starts to get into like things that seem kind of like bribes. And it seems like, seems kind of like that to me from the outsider eyes of like, okay, we're going to ask you to pay for advertising in a newsletter that nobody reads right. and <laughs> that doesn't cost quite as much to produce, but you're going to pay for that. And we'll call that an advertising fee. And, and then we'll let you on the shelf. Uh, and, and there's, you know, there's 
there's fees all over the place um, that fall under this rubric, which is, is I call trade, and I don't call it that, but it's called trade spend in the industry um, that refers to this kind of back channel means uh, of getting your item on shelf. And it is an absolutely a pay to play system in a way that I didn't understand. I think we knew that I, I knew that the end caps at the end of the aisles, of course, somebody's paying for those. I never thought that every square inch of the freezer was being marketed off for millions of dollars. And it is, you know, to, to roll out a single frozen item nationally is, is a, is over a million dollars uh, in, in fees. So, yeah pretty expensive no that i mean that's nuts i didn't know anything about the end caps i mean I, i'm total the total like rube coming into this i had no idea you know <laughs> um and and you mentioned one other thing here which which is crazy to think about is that you know like let's say julie for example wants to put her sloths on the shelf and so she's like look i, I think this stuff will sell i want to get the shelf space if she takes out a loan to get that shelf space and the product doesn't sell the company the the store will then charge her to remove the product from the shelf and you know you say one small mistake can turn into bankruptcy i mean th this besides being a barrier to entry even if you decide to take a risk on yourself and 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 you know decide to play it play ball one mistake and you're done because you don't have the capital you know the venture capital that you mentioned i mean this is a brutal brutal landscape yeah absolutely that's chargeback and that's that's actually often from the distributor um, and yeah, you're being, you know, you fronted this, uh, product that you expected to sell and that was going to fund your business. And then rather the store takes it from you, puts it on their shelves, ostensibly buys it. And then when it doesn't sell, they're forcing you to buy it back and, and, and we'll have a fee attached to that. <laughs> The, the the luxury of selling you your own food that you expected to sell to them back to you. Um, and yeah, again, it's, if it works out perfectly for you as an entrepreneur, then you can make a lot of money. If you're struggling to break in, you don't fully understand the dynamics. Um, one small mistake can become cataclysmic. And I, you know, again, and with the Julie story, I have to say, like, I can't stress enough how, Brilliant. Julie is one of the smartest, hardest working people I've ever met in any industry. And um, to watch the hoops she had to jump through to get a legitimately tasty item onto shelf was pretty, um, pretty remarkable. Yeah, her story is crazy. I mean, it's 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 something. I mean, so I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, this is a, this is a brutal landscape. It feels like you know, this is cliche, but it's like a jungle out there, right? There's predators everywhere, and if you're not if you're not in the know and you don't know all the rules and and how the game is played, you really can't be taken advantage of. And that's just from a seller standpoint. You know, we didn't even talk about uh, the you know the the shrimp. How uh, they found out how you know our whole shrimp market comes from the fact that one shrimp had his eyeball rubbed off from friction of circling a crowded tub <laughs> and that allowed them I stock ablation <laughs> yeah like that's the key that's a teaser you guys got to read the book to find that one out but that's the key and and the catalyst for all the shrimp that everyone eats across the world uh, I mean this this book is just crazy stuff um, but how can people get in touch with you how can people find the book uh, if they have any questions or just want to learn more about this yeah you know, it's it's everywhere books are sold, as they say. Uh, local independent bookstore should have no problem getting it to you. 
Um, if you haven't been dissuaded by the costs of convenience and efficiency that we've talked about, Amazon certainly has a copy <laughs> as well. And, uh, you know, I got a website out there. I'm on Twitter. If you need handholding for that process, I suppose I could provide it. But I, but I, uh, but yeah, it's, it's anywhere and everywhere. And are you pretty active on Twitter? Do you use social media? Do you need that stuff? Eh, I don't know. I, 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 I should be better at it, but I, you know, Twitter is its own art form and I'm not uh, talented at it, I think. So I, I'm better to just retweet anything that someone mentions about me, which is the lamest possible existence yeah. on it, but, uh, but also maybe better for my mental sanity. Uh, you're a long form guy. You're not a short form guy. You're a, you know, you're, you're a 250 right. pages, right. not a 250 character guy. Thank you. I, I'll take that as a compliment. We're in a, we're no, in a it is. Twitter, Twitterized world, though, so sometimes I feel like a little bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> a, well, I'm going to put it up there just in case by the time people listen to this that you've been rejuvenated and re-energized to, to go onto Twitter. I'll have links to that on the webpage. Uh, <laughs> and you're going to stick around. We're going to talk about Trader Joe's for a quick little bonus episode, which I'm very excited about. Uh, but I got to tell you, this is this book was incredible, just an eye-opening experience. Uh, I loved it. It's The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the super of the American Supermarket. Benjamin, Lord, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was a total pleasure. What a great conversation. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you got to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you are not currently subscribed to those podcasting platforms, we got it. We'll make it easy for you. You can find it on the website, fascinatingnouns.com. Go to the bottom and you'll find links to all of the aforementioned podcasting platforms. Or if you prefer, you can listen to the show on the website. You'll find the most recent on the homepage. But if you look at the top, you'll find two options to listen to all of the previous episodes, one in chronological order and one by guest order. But don't worry, we got them all there on the website fascinatingnouns.com. That's the place to go. And of course, you got to follow us on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the website. And if you like this show, it's very possible you'll like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.